Well, good morning to each of you. It's a blessing to be here. It's been a long time since we've been here on a Sunday morning. It's a blessing to be here and worship with you. I'd like you to turn to Matthew chapter 10. Some verses I'd like to look at here. Matthew 10 is where Jesus is sending out his disciples out into the world and they're to face things. They're going to face things. And as returning there, I asked you the question, have you ever been afraid? Have you ever been scared? Has fear ever been in your heart? And we'd, I think we'd all have to answer, yes, there has been, and maybe not very long ago. Fear is a part of, I guess, the human experience because we're just small little creatures and we face great big things that we're incapable of handling by ourselves. And so fear is something we have all experienced. And probably fear was a part of the disciples' experience here too as Jesus is sending them out. Matthew chapter 10, we see verse 16, Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. So if you're a sheep in the midst of wolves, it would be pretty logical to have some fear. Continuing, be ye therefore as wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And Jesus is explaining to his disciples that it's going to be tough times ahead. And I trust for us today is if you and I are the disciples of Jesus Christ, and if we're going to be true disciples, we're going to face some difficult things. And that tempts us with the problem of fear. How is this situation going to turn out? How am I going to handle this? Am I going to survive? Will God come through for me in this time of struggle? There's so many unknowns as we look at life. But I noticed three different places in this chapter where Jesus has some very significant to tell us that have trouble with fear. Verse 26, look with me. It says, Fear them not. That's the first one. Verse 28, and fear not them. And thirdly, verse 31, fear ye not, therefore. Comforting words. As I said, we've all faced times of fear. And I have wondered, where's God? I think we've all been there. And Satan tells us a lot of lies like you're alone in your struggle. You're not going to survive this. Uh, God doesn't care. Or else he wouldn't allow this. And those kinds of lies from the Father of lies. And I just notice what Jesus tells us to do when we face these kinds of doubts and fears. And three times in this chapter, Jesus says, don't be afraid. Well, that's nice to think about, that's nice to say, that's nice to hear, to not be afraid. And I deeply appreciate those words. And I know those words are true because Jesus said them and Jesus, Jesus doesn't tell lies. But what are the evidences, what are the reasons why you and I need not be afraid of life? And why we need not or should not listen to the lies of the liar, the devil. 
So let's look at this. Several things from this passage that give us a reason not to be afraid. Let's read verses 26 and 27 of Matthew chapter 10. It says, Fear them not, therefore, for there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, and hid that shall not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, that speak in light, and what you hear in the ear, that preach you upon ye upon the housetops. I think, in a nutshell, what Jesus is saying here is, do not be afraid because truth always wins in the end. I suppose that is one of our underlying fears. What if evil triumphs? What if the bad guys win? What if truth loses the battle? And if what I am relying on, what I am convinced is truth, what if that doesn't hold up in the end? That's a fear that, that shakes us. But Jesus tells us not to fear because truth will win. Lives will be exposed for what they are. And I won't take time this morning to turn to all the scriptures that would reinforce that. Your Bible is loaded with them. I encourage you to, to look at that and consider that. Truth will prevail. And lives will be exposed for what they are. Let's read verse 28. For Jesus said, And fear not them which are which kill the body and are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy, destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus is saying, do not be afraid because God is greater than anything man can do to us. All man can do is to end our life. And when all is well between you and God, our Heavenly Father, then death is nothing to fear. Because then death means uh, uniting with Him in a, in a new, more complete way. I'd like to spend most of our time here this morning looking at one of the reasons why we don't have to pray, be afraid found in verse 31. Actually, I'd like to read verses 29 to 31. It says, Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? And one of them shall not fall to the ground without your father. But the very hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear ye not, therefore, ye are of more value than many sparrows. Message entitled this morning, His Eyes on the Sparrow. I'd like to read the parallel passage in the book of Luke, which is similar, brings out a few different details. Luke chapter 12, verses 6 and 7. Luke chapter 12, verses 6 and 7. For Luke records Jesus saying this way, Are not five sparrows sold for two farthings? And not one of them is forgotten before God. But even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not therefore, ye are of more value than many sparrows. So, don't be afraid. Why should I not be afraid? What reason do we have to not be afraid? Number one, we don't have to be afraid because God is a great big God. Psalm 147. I'm not going to spend any time here. Just a few verses I want to read to support the, these points here. Psalm 147, verses 2 to 5. Say this. 
The Lord doth bind up Jerusalem. He gathers together the outcasts of Israel. He healeth the broken in heart and bindeth up their wounds. He telleth the number of the stars. He calleth them all by their names. Great is our Lord, and of great power His understanding is infinite. The Lord lifteth up for me. He casteth the wicked down to the ground. Sing unto the Lord the thanksgiving. Sing praise unto the harp, upon the harp unto our God. We don't have to be afraid because God is a great big God. Do you know how many stars there are? Nobody knows for sure. There's some estimates, there's some guesses. But the experts don't know because they're uncountable. And even if we knew the stars, whatever that number is, a gigantic number, it would be too great for us to understand. But that's not too big for God to understand and to know about. Because He made those stars for a purpose. In fact, Scripture says here that He gives them all names. At home at Wills Ridge, sometimes um, families bring new little people to church. They have a, a new little child and they bring them to church and it takes me a long time to remember what is their name. These little people running around, it's the belong. I know where he belongs, but what's his name? And I struggle. And God doesn't do that. He knows all those stars' names, and he knows your name too. So we don't have to be afraid because God knows these things. And if God made these things in our universe, and if God made you and I with purpose, with a plan, then there's a way for us to get through life safely. Does God care about tiny little me? A speck upon a speck? Isaiah 43, verses 1 and 2. Beautiful verses where it tells us that God knows our name. Isaiah 43, verses 1 and 2. But now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not. There's our thought for us today. Fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine. When I pass through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When I walk through the fire, thou shalt not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. For I am the Lord thy God. our God. He remembers. He knows. He's a big God. Much bigger than the things that cause us to fear. So, does God know my name? John 10, verse 3. says this. To him the porter openeth, and the sheep hears voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leadeth them out. I believe God knows your name. He knows your situation. He knows what you're facing. In fact, in the book of Revelation, it talks about the book of life and how important it is to have your name written there in the book of life. God knows your name. And the only thing we need to fear, I think, is what Jesus told us some of the verses that I read is the enemy who wants to remove our name from that book of life. 
So what reason do we have for fear? God made all the stars and all, everything else in the universe. And he named those stars, and He knows your name and my name. We don't have to fear because God is a great big God. Secondly, a reason we don't have to fear is because God notices and values things that we don't notice or it's impossible for us to understand. God sees and values things that, that we don't see as very valuable. Back to our text again in Matthew chapter 10, verse 29, where it says, Are not two sparrows sold for a father? One of them shall not fall to the ground without your father. How much is a sparrow worth? I don't think you've ever seen one in Walmart, probably. Maybe out in the parking lot, but not one with a price tag. Two cents or whatever they would be worth, I don't know. How much is a sparrow worth? We've all seen them around our houses, in the parking lot, and so on, always hopping about, always looking for things to eat and maybe being annoying to some of us at least, being a nuisance. Sparrows are everywhere, especially the English sparrow. It's the most common bird on the planet. They reproduce like crazy. Someone ought to do the math. I didn't take time to, but if a pair of sparrows, two sparrows, survive for 10 years, and they raise as many little sparrows as, as possible, they survive 10 years, and all of those little sparrows survive 10 years, and all have as many little sparrows as possible, how many sparrows would you have? After a few years, and I didn't do the math, but it, it's a lot. It's a lot because sparrows can have four broods in a year, with up to seven eggs each time, and the male will often continue to feed the young birds while mama's bird gets the next brood up and going, hatches the eggs, and so on. You would think that our skies would be black with sparrows. Way too many sparrows. But fortunately for us, it is estimated that only one in ten sparrows last, live longer than a year. Sparrows die all the time. We rarely notice. Because sparrows are not very important to us. The house sparrows on the same list as the starling and the pigeon, they're not protected by law, they're called a nuisance species. And you can kill a sparrow anytime you like, and, and, and it's not a problem. So not many of us pay attention to sparrows. Sparrows are not majestic like bald eagles. Sparrows don't have long, slender legs like a blue heron. Sparrows do not soar gracefully like a seagull. Sparrows don't have a beautiful voice like the wood thrush outside our house at home. Some people go bird watching, but I don't think I've ever heard of anybody going sparrow watching. A sparrow is not an ugly bird, but it's just so common and so unremarkable. So, with that in mind, look at verse 29 again. Are not two sparrows sold for falling? And one of them cannot fall to the ground without your father. God notices the sparrows. Isn't that amazing? I get annoyed at the few sparrows in our neighborhood 
God knows all about all the sins anyway. In Jesus' day, evidently, you could go to the marketplace and buy sparrows roasted on a stick. Sparrow nuggets, I guess. Two of them for a farthing. And a farthing was the smallest coin of the day, uh, the, the coin of the lowest value. Not much value at all. Less than a penny, according to one of the sources that I have. So, depending on the size of your family, you could feed your family a sparrow casserole for a dime. Luke says, in the verses that I read, that you could buy five sparrows for two fatherings. Matthew here says you could buy two sparrows for one fathering. So in other words, what Luke is saying, but when you buy, when you pay two fatherings instead of just four, which would be double what Matthew writes here, you get that extra sparrow free. Throw it in for the bargain and make it worth it. Two fatherings get you five sparrows. So the fifth sparrow, have you ever felt like the fifth sparrow? Just thrown in to make the bargain, bargain work. Not worth much at all. So what does the fifth sparrow have to do with us this morning? Well, what would you say, think about this question, what is one of the biggest things that when something comes between God and I, what is the, what are those things? For me, it's typically uh, unbelief or lack of faith or lack of surrender, those kinds of things. I think my problem is not so much that I lack of faith that God exists, but I struggle sometimes trusting His ways of doing things, His timing, His methods. And what typically goes along with that is that I, I'm just oblivious of the, the my surrounding confirmations of His love for me that, I, that are with me every day, every moment of every day. Jesus says there in Luke that not one sparrow is forgotten by our God, not even the fifth sparrow. Not one sparrow is forgotten. And I don't know how many sparrows there are in the world. No way of knowing, I guess. But not one of them is forgotten by God. God knows how many they are. Jesus said in Matthew 10, verse 31, Fear ye not, therefore, ye are more value than many sparrows. So there, Jesus said it. And the question is not whether whether or not Jesus what Jesus said is true. The question is, do I believe what Jesus said? And does that belief in what he said affect the way I live? Satan tells us lies about being worthless. Remember what Jesus said. Don't listen to those lies. Jesus said, you're of more value than many sparrows. Matthew chapter 10, the last part of verse 29, it talks about a sparrow falling on the ground. Now, I always assume that what Jesus is talking about is a sparrow that dies, he falls to the ground, and God sees that sparrow falling to his death. And I suppose that would be true. But that's only one interpretation of the word fall that Matthew uses there. 
The Greek word translated false could also mean to take from a high place and put at a lower place. A lower place as in the altitude. In other words, if a spirit is injured or brought to the ground, God sees that injured spirit just as God sees you and I as we experience injuries and tough things, painful things in our lives. Another interpretation for the word fall could also have the meaning to come to rest, to come to land on. In other words, God sees the sparrows as flying here and there, going about life. And he comes to rest and he starts hopping around right there on the ground. And in the same way, God sees you and I just going about life, doing our normal routine things. Nothing um, earth-shaking, it's just life. We, we spend a lot of time just doing that, don't we? Just life. God sees that too, and God understands and God cares. He sees the, our injuries, and He sees life how it is for us. And He sees when we face death. What a comfort to know that God knows each sparrow hop. And how much more does He care about your life and mine? Well, I don't value sparrows very much. They're so common, so insignificant, so ordinary. If one dies, it's plenty more. So I don't value sparrows very much. But God cares because He made them. And He has a purpose for them. And God cares for you and I as well. And He made us, and He has a purpose for us too. And I think the point that Jesus is driving home here is if a little sparrow is worth something to God, how much more you and I? You see, Jesus didn't, didn't die for sparrows. He died for you and I. Jesus doesn't intercede for sparrows that we know of, but He does for us. We can be sure that when Satan whispers in our ear about being worthless, we can know it's a lie. Just look at what Jesus said. Thirdly, another reason that we do not have to fear is because God cares about the tiniest details of life, Matthew 10, verse 30. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Have you ever tried to do that? Count your hairs on your head? And if you ever would try it, you have more time than I do <laughs> with this thing. But it's why technically, sort of, might be possible to do. It's impossible to do accurately. I suppose you could take a square inch of your scalp, mark it with a, a marker, and count every one of them times seven many square inches of scalp that you have, and get uh, have a ballpark figure, I suppose. But that doesn't uh, account for all the ones on the floor and on the couch and on your shoulder and, and down the drain. I suppose the density of our hairs would vary depending on what part of the scalp you're talking about. Just look at me. As much as I love my wife and family, I've never, ever tried to count their hairs. 
much less keep track of when they fall out. But God knows. God knows these things. Why is that important to Him? I don't know, but He made us, and He cares about us. So the point here is, this is the God of God that we serve. He knows everything. Even what is unknowable to you and I, God knows those things. We won't take time to turn to the book of Daniel, but in Daniel chapter 3 is where the three Hebrew young men are in the fiery furnace. And the Bible tells us there that in that amazing miracle that not one of hair of their head was finished. It's amazing. And that furnace just killed the men who threw them in there. This furnace was raging torrent of, of death. Seven times hotter than it usually was. And the king saw them walking around there un, unharmed that fourth man in the fire with them. Now one of their hairs were singed. It is thought that probably the average person has approximately 100,000 hairs. A little less if you have red hair, a little more if you have blonde. It just has to do with the, the density of, it, of your hair and, and how fine it is and so on. I've had many haircuts in my lifetime. Somehow it doesn't seem as much coming off as it used to be. That's another story, but just for an illustration, what if you would add up how many hairs your family If, uh, just for fun, I, I sort of used that ballpark figure of 100,000 hairs, and if I count Ben and I as having half the hair we once had, and I count each one of our grandchildren having about half the hair of an amount of hair as an adult, don't forget that even newborns that are bald have tiny little hairs. I came up with a figure for my family of 1.6 million hairs on my family. And God knows about all of them, all those pieces of hair, even when they fall out. And I won't even attempt to try to do the math here this morning, how many hairs are represented here. Quite a few. A staggering amount, actually. What about all the hairs of people throughout history? You know, Absalom and Samson and Esau, those are hairy guys, the Bible tells us. And all the way to Elisha, who was bald, and, and Ezra, who pulled out some of his hair, the Bible tells us. God knows about those too, along with everything else about them. Luke chapter 12, verse 7 says, all of them are numbered. That's incredible. And the, the word translated all means exactly that. It means all of them. Without exception. Jesus said in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, that we cannot make one of our hairs black or white. God knows about these things. Nobody here has ever picked up a hair off the counter and said, huh, there's hair number 4,981. We can't do that. And the hairs of our head, it's, it's just one of the details that we find impossible to keep up with what God knows all about. Just an illustration of His love for us. And His interest in us. God not only knows all about our history, 
and how we got to where we're at today, but God knows where we're at right now at this moment in life and what we're facing and, and, and so on. Well, the hair may fall, the sparrow may fall, but it never falls without God knowing about it. And the point is, God knows and cares about the tiniest details of our lives, even when we don't understand them ourselves. So, because that's the kind of God we serve, we don't need to be afraid. Sometimes, maybe you've experienced this, sometimes I'm praying and pouring out my heart to God, and these little doubts that Satan whispers in our ear. You know, does God really care about this little problem that you have? I mean, look around in our world is filled with problems and heartaches and sickness and disaster and poverty and war and hunger and grief and struggle. With all the problems in our world and our neighborhoods today, with all the people who are struggling way more than I am, my little request seems pretty small to a big and a busy God. Does God care? Does God have the time and the interest to hear our little request? With all that God keeps track of, all those hairs to keep up with, and everything else, all the sparrows to keep up with, how does God care for me and you? Jesus is saying that God does care and He is interested. Now let's look at the thing about the other side of this, just about this. We should not be self-centered. We should not be prideful. We should not be arrogant, as though we are the only thing that matters in this world. Because we're not. A right perspective of our relationship with God and our place in, in His kingdom reminds us to be humble and a grateful people. But my point, and kind of what I'm focusing on this morning, is the fears that we have that we're insignificant, that we don't matter, and God doesn't care. Those are lies from the devil. You know, as humans, we're surrounded by limits. Everything around us is limited, including us, maybe especially us. Limits are just part of life. It's the context in which we think. There's limits. We think about our situation in life, and, and we even think about God sometimes this way from the perspective of limits. So this morning, I just want to remind us that God is without limits. So very different than us, who are limited. But we may limit God in our minds as we struggle with tough things in life. But we are not praying to a finite and limited being like you and I are. The God is infinite. And that changes everything. So think about the question, how does a proper perspective of God change our prayers and our expectations of answered prayer? Well, our prayers change when we Understand that we cannot escape God's care. You and I have short attention spans. We forget things. In contrast, 
God even understands our groanings when we don't know how to express ourselves. We don't know how to pray. And the vast majority of the suffering in the world we know nothing about. But God knows all about it. And so when I know that the God I am praying to and appealing to knows everything, it changes how I pray. Our prayers also change because we cannot run God out of time. He's the God of eternity. We are the ones that run out of time. We're going to run out of time here after this ourselves this morning. We can't run God out of time. The point here is that we will not, we cannot waste God's time as we pray when our prayer is, is from our hearts and is the genuine thing. Prayer is never, ever a nuisance to God or a distraction from what He's really interested in. The Scripture is clear. God is delighted in His children and He loves to communicate with them. Our prayers also change because we cannot exalt God's love. I've wondered already if sometimes in my arrogance and my stubbornness I push God too far. That maybe He's tired of my stubborn ways and forgiving my sin and my mistakes. And he what if he's too busy loving seven million other a billion other people in this world to love me and notice me? And here again, see I, I, I tend to apply my own limitations to God. And that's just not the way it is. We forget that God is infinite. The love of God is infinite. It's without limits. And even if I turn my back on him or walk away from God, he still loves me. Romans 5, verse 8, but God commended His love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. His mercies are new every morning. It's an amazing promise. God's love for His children is, is as constant and unchanging as the rising of the sun. In fact, even more so, because one day the sun won't rise anymore. But God love, God's love will continue. Now we need to, in, in all this, these thoughts about God loving us and, and caring for us, we also need to understand that God is holy, He is pure, He is uncompromising, He cannot overlook sin. Even though He loves us when we turn from Him. From him. But His every intention, His every purpose is that we spend eternity with Him. The God in His wisdom gives us an opportunity to choose for ourselves. And we won't have time this morning to discuss and think about God's holiness and His justice. But what I'm trying to point out here this morning, through the words of Jesus, is that Satan is telling a lie when he says that God doesn't care and He doesn't notice our situation in life. Jesus is clear. We cannot escape God's care we cannot escape God's notice. We cannot escape His love. We cannot run God out of time. There's nothing too big or too small for God to notice and care about and to supply the need for. Jesus said so. And I think that settles it. There's no need for fear. So we thought about some reasons why we don't have to fear this morning. Number one, because God is a great God. Number two, because God notices and values things. 
that we do not always notice and value. Number three, because God cares about the tiniest details of life. And finally, number four, another reason we don't have to fear is because God cares about us when trouble comes, even when we don't know why the trouble came. There's a place in Israel known as Dothan, possibly a few miles north of Samaria. And two significant things happened at Dothan. We won't take time to turn there, but if you're writing notes, jot these references down. But God cares about us even when trouble comes and even when we don't understand. And here's what happened at Dothan. Genesis 37, verses 17 and 18. That's the place where Joseph's brother sold him as a slave at Dothan. And we won't take time to retell all these details, but Joseph was sold as a slave. He ended up in Egypt. He's bought by Potiphar. He's lied about. By Potiphar's wife, he ends up in prison. He's forgotten there in prison by the chief butler. And Joseph evidently did not lose faith in God through all of that trouble. If I would have been Joseph, I can imagine myself asking the question, why? This isn't fair. This makes no sense. Today, of course, we have the luxury of looking back on the life of Joseph, seeing all those details and how God was moving and working through all of those details, that chain of circumstances that had to happen in a certain way for everything to work out. Amazing story. Why was Jacob, why did he want to send Joseph to find his brothers in the first place? The start of this whole chain of events. Why was Joseph's brother on a, in a different place than what they were expected to be on that particular day? Why there were, was an Ishmaelite coming along who was willing to buy a slave? Why were they going to Egypt? All these questions, all these circumstances that had to work out in just the right way to accomplish God's plan. Why did Sarah have a dream you couldn't remember? As Joseph was experiencing these things, it must have seemed unconnected. Just a hodgepodge of random events that were tough and hard. God was in control. God knew all about it. And tied it together in something beautiful. The other thing that happened at Dothan, 2 Kings 6, verses 13 and 14, that's the story of, of uh, Elisha and his servants. There at Dothan, and the king of Syria is trying to conquer Israel. And every time he tries to, to do something, someone is informing on him. And he's accusing his own staff, his, his own army, or whoever is official of, of being spies and, and traitors. And they say, no, it's not us, it's that prophet down there in Dothan. He, he knows uh, what your plans are. And so the king decides, well, he's going to take care of this problem. He goes down to Dothan. They surround the city. They're after one man. That must have been a helpless feeling. They're going to get this guy. Remember what Elisha said. He prayed, asking God to reveal to his servant the protection that God has surrounding that simple town. 
That happened at Dothan. So we have the story of Elisha being surrounded and the story of Joseph being sold in Egypt. Just to remind us, I think, of the truth of that God is working down the center. He knows what's going on. He has a plan. He has a purpose. He's up to something. God is still up to something in your life and in mine. Although we don't see it, we don't understand it. We're just living life and sometimes struggling with the 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 scary things that we face, just trying to survive. We can think about many other stories in Scripture of people who faced and endured tough things, not understanding what God was doing, and yet God was moving, shaping, and molding, and and orchestrating things through life to work out something. The uh, story of David the shepherd boy, the story of Esther the queen, Joseph and Mary went to Bethlehem just in time to be born, for Jesus to be born. Um, many, many stories like that of actual happenings that made no sense, that was difficult at the time, and yet God was working out the details. So if God, we have an incredible history in our Bibles of God working out details in people's lives. And the Bible tells us that the, God knows all about the sparrows in the head of your head. Surely He knows about your life where you're at today, right now. God is up to something. It may not make sense today, in the moment. Any more than it made sense to Joseph in the dungeon cell in Egypt so long ago. God cares for us even in times of trouble. And that fact gives us a boldness, a confidence in these difficult times. Not because of self-confidence or arrogance, and that boldness is the result of being confident in, in the God that we serve. He understands the answers. He's up to something. We can be confident even when we're confused. We have a hope in Him. He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Some of close this morning, but the message this morning is very simple, very simple, but profound, because not because of His preaching it, but because He said it to start with. God has said it in a thousand different ways, I suppose, and Jesus emphasized it in His teaching. We need to believe it and live it. Are not two sparrows sold for a father. And one of them shall not fall to the ground without your father. But the very hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear ye not, therefore, ye are of more value than many sparrows. God is in charge of every raindrop, all the way from the rain cloud to the earth and the cycle back again. God is in charge of every grain of sand, all the way from the rock from which it was broken off of all the way to the seashore, all the way to the sandcastle, the little boy names. God knows all about that. God is in charge of every star, in fact, every single atom in the universe. All of creation awaits His command. And yet God cares for you and I. 
And then abandoned. Cares for us much more than spares. Jesus didn't die for spares. He died for you and I. I'd like to close in the book of Psalm. Psalm 124. I read the whole psalm here. Eight verses. It says, It had not been the Lord who was on our side, how may Israel say, It had not been for the Lord who was on our side, but men rose up against us, then they had swallowed us up quick, and their wrath was kindled against us. And the waters had overwhelmed us, and the stream had gone over our soul, and the proud waters had gone over our soul. Blessed be the Lord who hath not given us as a prey to their teeth. Our soul is escaped as a bird out of the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken, and we are escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Maybe you already felt like the sparrow in the trap that it mentions in Psalm 124. Good for not much. Just probably going to be eaten. That's what would have happened in, in those days, probably. Don't fear. Verse 7 tells us that the trap is broken. And there's a way to escape. We can be free. Hallelujah. Not only can we be free, we can belong to His family. But God values us much more than spirits. So where's the evidence that God loves us? Well, the cross, the resurrection is, is at the top, top of the, that list of the evidences of God's love. We have a, those evidences all around us. Everywhere we look are the evidences of God's love. Shouldn't that make a difference on how we live? Shouldn't that make a difference how we deal with the challenges and troubles of life? First Peter 5, verse 7, Casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. And right there is the point I'm trying to make this morning. Casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you.